pray together. Strange words, Lord, these for 21st century Americans. Lump of dough, holiness, first fruits, broken off branches. And yet, so important for our lives and for the history of the world. So please, Father, give us a willing heart to listen to your word. Help me to make it plain and to handle it faithfully. Make it the instrument of salvation and of edification. Make it the instrument of healing and the instrument of reconciliation and the instrument of encouragement, the instrument of humbling where there is pride and of upbuilding where there's downcast soul. Make it the instrument of blessing upon blessing, grace and truth abounding and doing more than I can imagine. So, Lord, I pray that you'd come now and be the teacher in this moment. Make me an instrument of your peace and of your truth and of your grace and of your salvation and of your great joy. Through Christ I pray. Amen. One of the greatest follies of trying to turn the Christian gospel into a response or a means of meeting the felt needs of 21st century Americans is that the three primary needs that the gospel meets, almost nobody feels the need of. The explosively happy word in the gospel is the word saved. Look at verses 13 and 14. It's right here in our text. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, you non-Jews, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow I might make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's aim is that they be saved. So there's the key explosive, happy word in the middle of the Christian message or the Christian gospel, saved. It's what Christmas is all about, right? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people, for there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Somebody's coming to save the people from their sins. Or you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people, his people from their sins. This word save or saved is the explosive, central, happy word of the gospel. So, is that one of the felt needs in America? I need to be saved. 
Wake up feeling that. Go to bed feeling that. Think about that at lunch, movies, TV, leisure. Well, maybe. Depends, right? It depends on whether you're talking about saved from one thing or another thing. What does the gospel talk about being saved from? There's three things. Two from, one for. Right at the center of the gospel, if you want to look at them with me, I'm at Romans 5 now, verse 9 to 11. Because I don't want to just take all my evangelical jargon and history and dump it into this word, assume everybody knows what saved means. So let's get it right from the text, chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, set right with God by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, there's the first need that the gospel meets. We need to be saved from God's anger. Keep reading. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here comes the second crucial thing. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Saved from wrath, for joy in God. So there's two needs the gospel meets. The need to be rescued from the clutches of the just and holy wrath of God because of our sin. And secondly, the need for joy that is bigger than joy in the little pleasures of this world we're made for joy in the biggest glory of the universe, namely God. That's what it says in verse 11, we will get through the gospel. Rejoice in God. Now, there's a third need that the Bible says the gospel meets. I already read it in Matthew 1.21. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not just the wrath-bringing guilt of sin, but the poisonous, ugly, distorting power, idol-producing wickedness of sin. If those three things don't happen, I'm frankly not interested in the gospel. I've got to get out from under the wrath of a holy God. I know it's there because my own conscience witnesses to it. I've got to get rid of this power in my life that makes me love evil more than I love God and distorts all the beautiful things in life and turns them into prostitutes. And I don't want to just have a negative life I want to be satisfied with something way bigger than anything I've ever seen in this world. I want God to satisfy me with himself. So, 
Are those the felt needs of 21st century America? So I think it's really a tragedy to try to turn the gospel into a meeting of felt needs. Not a word here. Not a word in the Christian gospel about being saved from poverty. Not a word about being saved from sickness. Not a word about being saved from obscurity. Not a word about being saved from human rejection. Not a word about being saved from the victim of terrorism. Not a word about being saved from having your daughter kidnapped and killed. I don't know of any promise in the gospel that says things will go better for us in this world. Not one. Now, as a matter of fact, the gospel does help things go better for you in lots of ways. But they may not. That's not guaranteed in the gospel. What's guaranteed is what you need. You need escape from the wrath of Almighty God. You need freedom from this all-distorting power of sin. And you need a heart that stops loving idols and finds satisfaction in God. Those are the three massive needs in 21st century America. That's what saved is all about. Preachers have a hard job, in other words. We must meet needs that nobody feels. Which is why we're so utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. It is a piece of cake to make people feel good if you just scratch them where they itch. That takes no Holy Spirit whatsoever. I know what would scratch every one of you. You're all vain. And so if I complimented your looks, you'd feel really good. You want to be strong? So if I said you were strong, you'd feel really good. You want to be intelligent? So if I complimented your intelligence, you'd feel really good. I know where to scratch. And it would do you no good whatsoever except grow a big church. Paul in chapter 11, amazingly, is concerned for the salvation of all Israel. The salvation. I've begun this way just so that this word salvation won't be empty for us. And maybe the Holy Spirit would just use the first seven or eight minutes to awaken your sense that I didn't walk in here feeling the need to be escaping the wrath of God or having the distorting sins of my life taken away or loving God more than I love the world, but maybe that is what I need. Well, Paul has this heart for Israel, and he wants them to experience this as a whole. Look at verses 25 in the middle of verse 25. We're in chapter 11 now of Romans 25 and 26. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. You saw that back in verse 7. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, 
So there's a mission to be done. And when it's done, it's going to be a great event. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's that word again. Only look who is benefiting. All Israel. Now, that's the burden of this chapter. This chapter began as God rejected his people. And I think Paul carries the burden right through this chapter. No, 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 not even in its entirety. All Israel, the corporate ethnic People as a whole in some future generation are going to awaken to the fact that in Jesus they have a Messiah who frees them from the wrath of God, takes away their sins, and makes them happy in God forever. That's going to happen, I believe. And that's what this chapter is trying to help us see. Now, today's text is simply verses 15 and 16. I had him read the whole thing just to get us ready because we're going to be in those verses that Courtney read for some weeks because they are so full of implication practically for our pride and for our Jewish-Christian relations and for how we Gentiles get saved and stay saved. But tonight, just verse 16. Let's read them. Verse 15 and 16. For if there, that is, if Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance? Now, that's what I think is coming someday. They've been rejected. This corporate people as a whole have been rejected. What will their acceptance someday, when it happens, mean but life from the dead? And I argued last week that's the resurrection which will happen after Israel comes to Christ. Verse 16. If the dough, I think this is the basis of verse 15. This is the basis of the hope that there will be a future acceptance of Israel. Why does Paul believe this? Why does he believe that someday all Jews will turn to Christ? That's a wild notion. I mean, headlines in Tel Aviv. Everybody's turning to Jesus. I think that's going to happen. If I'm right, where did Paul get this notion? Why does he think this? So verse 16 seems to be his reasoning. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, if the first fruits are holy, Got a picture here. Now, of a lump of dough, right? And pull off a piece of it and offer it. This, this is from Leviticus. Offer it. No, I think it's numbers. And uh, as a gift to God. And if that is holy, it's arguing, then the lump is holy. And then there's another analogy. And if the root, you got a tree now. You get shifted metaphors from lump of dough to tree. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, pictures, analogies, metaphors, 
are risky because you can push them too far and make them mean more than they're intended to mean, right? Every analogy will, will implode if you push on it too hard. It'll teach you things it, it doesn't want to teach. Parables are like that, and these are like that. For example, I'll show you a couple of mistakes you can make with these so that we can avoid them. You could take that first analogy, first fruits are holy, so the rest is holy, must mean if the corporate Israel is in view, if this is Israel, then if a little piece of it was holy, every single individual Jew who's ever lived is holy. You might draw that conclusion just from the image. And it would contradict dozens of things Paul and Jesus say. So we don't want to go that far with it. I'll come back and try to give you what I do think it means. Here's the other mistake you could do with the root. Same thing. It says, if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. And so you could say, well, if the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the roots of Israel were holy, then every single individual Jew that's ever lived must be saved, holy, which would contradict the very next paragraph, which says branches are being broken off because of their unbelief. So you got to be careful with pictures, images, analogies, metaphors. There's a meaning here, and I want to try to unpack it and show where he got it so we don't misuse the pictures. I think the first fruits of the dough and the roots of the tree are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that part is right. I'll show you why in just a minute. I think holy means devoted to the Lord, set apart from the nations as a special people for God. God reached down, he took Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and made a covenant with him and said, you're mine, in a very special way. And then he worked with this people, setting them apart for himself, devoted to himself, obedient in covenant faithfulness. That's what I think holy means. Holy in the sense of set apart as a special possession for God. Now, the thesis is, okay, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these root covenant people, God made these covenants, Genesis 17, and then reaffirmed it along the way. If he made that covenant with them and set them apart for himself, then what? The whole lump is holy. So what's the whole lump? The branches are holy. Which branches? And since he's arguing from there's been a rejection, there's going to be an acceptance, my conclusion is, and I'll give you an argument for it, he means someday God is going to take all of Israel, all the branches, all the lump, and make it holy. They're going to be saved. They're going to join the church. They're going to become Christians. They're going to awaken to Jesus as the true and only Messiah and weep for the one whom they pierced as for an only son, and a nation will be created in a day. Now, for a confirmation of that interpretation, let's go to chapter 11, verse 28. See if you agree. 
Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, this is the Jewish people, as a whole, the corporate ethnic entity of Israel, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Now, just stop there and remind yourself of verse 11 last week. Remember verse 11? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. We laid it all out last week. That's exactly what this is saying. As regards the gospel, that is, as it's being preached now, they're stiff-arming it. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the Messiah. And why? For your sake. Because the gospel now is coming to the Gentiles, spilling over the banks of the hardened Israel. Now comes the key sentence. But as regards election, they, that same they, are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Now, there's where I get the patriarchs. You wonder, where did you get the idea that the first fruits was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the roots were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I got it right there. That's where I got that idea. The, they are elect for the sake of the forefathers. So, you got the first half of the verse describing verse 11, hardening, stumbling, trespass, for the sake of the salvation of the Gentiles, for your sake. And then you've got the second half of the verse that says, oh, but there's a deeper reality. Once upon a time, God set his favor in election upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And today, this people has not and will not be abandoned for that sake. There's coming a day when this hardness will be removed and he will bring them according to his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to himself. So that's my warrant for the interpretation that I gave to verse 16 on the basis of verse 28. Now here's a question that I have for the Apostle Paul. Where'd you get this notion that you can be so sure that the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not simply fulfilled in the church or the remnant of Israel. Why do you argue from the root and the first fruits of the dough, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant he made with them, to the necessity of all Israel someday being saved. Why not just be content with a remnant, an elect remnant? Because I don't think this chapter is about the salvation of a mere remnant. I think it's about God's faithfulness to the people as a whole, and that's why he labors for a whole chapter to make his case because the remnant idea was clear already in chapter 9. Well, one answer would go like this. When Paul read the prophets, I've been reading the prophets 
in my devotions for weeks. And uh, so I feel like this is the argument I'd like to talk about because I've been seeing it everywhere. When Paul read the prophets, he read so many texts that seemed to say hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham that this covenant implies salvation for a people as a whole beyond anything they were experiencing right then that he read that and he said that must be implicit in the covenant so I'm going to take you to some of those texts and see if you see what I think Paul saw let's start in Jeremiah 24 you can just listen if you want or you can go there with me Jeremiah 24 you know the situation Jeremiah is addressing a people in Babylon the exile has happened. God has judged his people. He's taken them out of Jerusalem. He sent them into exile in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah is the great prophet of, they're going to return, they're going to return. And he says some things about Israel that simply did not get fulfilled when they returned to Jerusalem and have not been fulfilled to this day. And I think they're going to be fulfilled. Jeremiah 24, 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That didn't happen. Never has happened. Yet. I think Paul read texts like that and said, that begs for a fulfillment. Chapter 31, the New Covenant chapter. Verse 2 and 3, Jeremiah 31, 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Even when he judged them and sent them under his wrath into Babylon, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I will not break my faithfulness to you. And they deserve to have his faithfulness broken to them. But he wouldn't let them go. He's going to bring them back. Verse 10, chapter 31 he who scattered Israel will gather him, will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. I jumped to verse 20 in case you're following. Is, if, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? That's verse 20. As often as I speak against him, I do remember him. Now comes the new covenant passage. This is important. Verse 31. Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm skipping a few verses. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Skip a few verses, a few words. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's ours. Jesus said when he held up the cup at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning, I bought that covenant for my people and everybody who belongs to me belongs in that covenant. So don't hear me saying that this is a uniquely Jewish covenant with no application to us Gentiles. Don't hear that. Here's what I'm saying. I don't think when we were grafted in to that covenant, God ceased to see it as an all-Israel covenant. That's what I'm saying. Look at the following verses. Verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. If this, verse 36, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord, which is a radical way of saying, I will never cast them off. Ezekiel is another prophet who made the link between the Abrahamic covenant and the eternal covenant apply to Israel like no other prophet. Chapter 16, verse 60 of Ezekiel goes like this. Yet I will remember my covenant with you. So remembering, he's remembering the root, the lump, the first fruits of the lump. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. You were holy, remember? I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Now, I think that's a way of saying, the root is holy, the lump will be holy. I'll read it again. See if you see, that's what Paul saw here. I will remember with you in the days of your youth the covenant I made, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will renew that for you forever. And then verse 26 of chapter 37 goes like this in Ezekiel. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land. You see, you can't not see this as applying to ethnic Israel uniquely, not exclusively, just Uniquely. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. I shall be an everlasting, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So my argument is this. Paul wrote verse 16 in Romans 11. The root is holy, so the branches are going to be holy. And the first fruits of the lump is holy, so the whole lump is going to be holy because he saw in the whole Old Testament so many indications that in God's mind, the Abrahamic covenant would never cease to apply to the whole people of Israel. And that's the way I think chapter 11 is structured. Yes, there is a remnant in every generation. Yes, the Gentiles are grafted in and included in the new covenant and the covenant that goes back to Abraham. And no, that does not exclude the promise applying to all Israel. Let me close by clarifying what this does not mean. And then what it does mean. Number one, it does not mean that Israel will be saved any other way than Gentiles are saved. By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, alone. Jewishness saves nobody. Gentilishness saves nobody. Two, this does not mean a Jew can boast in his ethnic Jewishness and claim saving advantage over anyone. Verse 20 of our text. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's the only thing that puts and keeps anybody in Israel. Faith, not Jewishness. The only thing that makes you part of the tree is faith alone, not ethnicity of any kind, including Jewishness. Some of you have asked good questions. Why did God ordain that salvation come to the Gentiles through the trespass of Israel? You see it in the text, you have said to me, but you're puzzled as to why he would do it in such a roundabout way. Why, why can't he just save the Gentiles and save the Jews? Why? Why does there have to be this seeming chapter of redemptive history in which Jews go under hardening and trespass and stumbling, and that becomes the means by which gospel goes to the Gentiles? Why? Now, I'm going to suggest one answer, and I'm sure it's not the whole answer because God is bigger than my brain, but... I think it's implicit in this chapter, indeed throughout the Bible. What God is doing in giving Israel over to a season of hardness 
is showing the world in the most graphic, painful, costly, crystal clear way, ethnicity saves nobody. He's teaching a lesson both to Jews and to Gentiles. Don't boast in your distinctives, your circumcision, your worship, your tradition. Boast in your Messiah. He's the only reason any of you will ever be saved. And that becomes crystal clear when the whole chosen nation is abandoned for a season. In other words, there's a lesson to be taught for the world. Don't work your way to heaven with human distinctives. Trust, 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 trust grace. That's the message. Why God thought it helpful to do it that way? I will not try to write history for God. All I know is I'm going to learn this lesson because it's there to teach me. God forbid that I should ever presume that I'm an American or I'm a Baptist or I'm a male or, or I'm white or anything like that would have the least power to commend me to God. Nothing. Because he's shown that he took the apple of his eye and because they were starting to presume upon their tradition and their Jewishness, I'll show you how valuable that is in getting to heaven. And the whole generation is kept from God. That Gentiles would learn, oh, we better not ever depend on anything in ourselves like that. So the whole point of chapter 11 is for Gentiles and Jews to learn that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from ethnic distinctives and work distinctives and tradition distinctives. All of this is designed to demonstrate a couple of things. One, God can and will save all Israel without being bound to save any Jew because he's Jewish. If you wanted to save all Israel, which God does, and not run the risk that in saving them it would seem like Jewishness is what got them saved, how would you do it? God does it by letting a hardening come upon a people for a long time to show that will never get you there. And then after he has brought in all these ragtag, uncircumcised, Johnny-come-lately, ham-eating Gentiles who deserve nothing but damnation, he will one day send the Holy Spirit in the most powerful way, lift the veil, take off the hardening, and instead of saying, huh, we're the Jews, that they will never say that again. They will say, look at our Messiah. And by grace alone, through faith alone, he will bring them in. And let us say this. It's coming. I'm going to preach sermons on this, but I'll go ahead and get it anyway. 
God can and will save a whole fullness of Gentiles who do not boast over the broken off branches. If you wanted to save millions upon millions of red and yellow, black and white from every culture, having abandoned Jews for a season, you would need to take some very special precautions that those Gentiles did not say they were broken off so that we might be grafted in. Which is exactly what this text says they were saying. And Paul responds, they were because of their unbelief. And you stand for one reason, faith. So don't boast over the branches, but fear, because if they were broken off, you can be broken off. Do you see where we end up? Nobody can boast anymore. It's all grace. The mouth of the Gentile is shut. The mouth of the Jew is shut. One thing will save me, sheer sovereign grace, embraced through faith, owing to nothing in me and everything in him. Grace, grace, grace. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we close now, grace would feel sweet to us. We tremble. I think Paul was trembling at the end of chapter 11 when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. Who has known the mind of the Lord? I think he was trembling at what he had just said. And I do too because they're heavy, weighty, risky things to say. But oh, may the upshot be from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory for grace. And so may people, Lord, at Bethlehem and all the guests among us, embrace the gift of grace at Christmas time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.